Well, it's been, it's been a fun journey uh, so far, and I'm thankful that you're back here tonight to uh, join us uh, for the book of Acts. We saw uh, this morning, and we've seen over the last few weeks, uh, the gospel. I hope, you, I hope you're getting a sense, like a, a really good, solid sense of why the gospel writers wrote their gospels and how they wrote the gospels, what they had on their mind. Uh, one of the big things for us is authorial intent. Why did they write what they wrote? Why did they say what they said? Why didn't they say this? Uh, why did they include this? Why did they put this story after this story? All of these questions matter for serious Bible study, and that's part of what we're doing. We're just trying to, you know, skim the surface to show you some of these things. So as you go back and, and remain a student of the Word, that you actually get a very clear picture of uh, what God's doing and why these, uh, these people wrote what they wrote. And that becomes particularly important as we get into the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament, a lot of its history, the, the Jewish people were very concerned, the prophets and scribes and priests, and they were all concerned with, with recording Israel's history because they, they believed that when God spoke, it was worth writing down. And so they, they wrote a lot of that history. But now what we're getting into is specific prescriptions for the Christian life. Acts is not that necessarily, uh, but specific prescriptions for the Christian life from Romans and Galatians and First and Second Corinthians and Philemon and Titus and all all of these New Testament books, which we'll deal with just like we like we like we've dealt with these other books and and some of them, uh, like when we look at the uh, the Thessalonians, we'll look at First and Second Second Thessalonians in one day. So that you can get a very clear picture of Paul's mindset as he wrote and how this church grew. And I think that'll be really encouraging for us as a local church uh, so that we can glean from what Paul's heart was for that local church. And so we'll, we'll tackle that in the next several weeks. Okay? But, uh, but as we finished our study through the Gospels this morning, we saw uh, the writers target specific people groups with a specific message. Uh, we saw Matthew, he wrote specifically to Jews. Uh, telling them that Jesus was the true and better Moses, the Jewish Messiah, and that we should submit to his teaching. And that's why he put a lot of Jesus' teaching uh, as the main, uh, as five main blocks in the body of his book. And then we saw Mark, who wrote to the Romans. Uh, he wrote that, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God. He used his power to serve us, right? Remember Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you see that from Matthew and Mark. And then Luke, Luke wrote to Gentiles. He wrote that Jesus is the God-man who lived perfectly as a human, drawing near to the outcasts in society in love. And then John, as we saw this morning, he, he wrote to anybody who would believe that Jesus is God who came to unleash God's power and victory through submission and death. And so tonight as we come to the book of Acts, we're on the home stretch of our journey through God's Word. This is our 40th message. And it's really our 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44th book, right? 44th, yeah, 44th book uh, in the Bible out of, out of just these 66 books that we have. And so we really are on the home stretch because a lot of the books that we'll be dealing with are much shorter uh, and we'll, we'll be able to, 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 like I said, pile some of those together to see the clear picture of it all. But what we've seen thus far in the Bible is now that God, uh, God is all in on his plan to save us. Um, and not, not that that's anything new, because all throughout the Old Testament, God the Father has been designing salvation. What we've seen in the Gospels is that 
Uh, God the Son achieves salvation, and then now, beginning the book of Acts, we're going to see God the Spirit apply our salvation. And so, we've, we've broken it down in several different ways, promises made, promises kept, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Here, what we've seen in the Gospels versus the book of Acts is that God the Father has designed salvation, Jesus has achieved it, and that God the Spirit applies it. And we've seen throughout the Old Testament that God's design is to restore his blessing back to the nations through Abraham's family, going all the way back to Genesis 12. The blessing being restored, the blessing that was lost in the garden because of sin, his purpose is to restore that blessing. And then in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we saw Jesus achieve the, our salvation and declare it is finished in John chapter 19, verse 30. But then this morning in the Gospel of John, we heard him talk about the Holy Spirit and how he would draw, transform, and empower the people of God to multiply the mission of God. And Jesus said in John 14 through 16 that it was better for him to leave because he was just one person. But if he left, then the Spirit would come and take up residence inside of God's people for a specific purpose. And this is what the book of Acts is all about. And so let's jump in, Acts chapter 1, and let's see Luke's focus here in the book of Acts. Beginning in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Luke begins with the same kind of dedication to this man, Theophilus, that he had in his gospel. It says in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. We'll stop there for a second. And so Luke begins his book making it a clear sequel to his gospel account. And traditionally, I don't know if it's the same way in your Bible, what's the title right above Luke chapter 1? The Acts of what? The Apostles. That's a horrible title. That's the traditional title. That's not the best title, though. And you say, well, Ryan, why make a big deal about that? Because it's very clear from the, the, the text of the book of Acts itself that the apostles are not the main characters. Just in the book of Acts, you have a shifting perspective, kind of bouncing around on Peter and Paul and Barnabas and Stephen and Philip and others. But do you know the consistent, the consistent protagonist is the Holy Spirit. In 28 chapters mentioned, named by name, that he did these things over 57 times. He's the main character of the book of Acts. And that's why some have renamed this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And if you want to write in your Bible, you can write that in your Bible. And still others even took it a step further based on what we said about God the Father designing it, God the Son achieving it, and God the Spirit applying it. Somebody, a guy named Alan Thompson, named it this. The acts of the Lord Jesus through his people by the Holy Spirit for the accomplishment of the Father's purposes. That's a little far, right? <laughs> but still, you, you get the idea that it's not just about these apostles. Because Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is not about these fickle human beings. Just like it's not about us as fickle human beings. It's about the Spirit's work through them, and it's about the Spirit's work through us. Because it's through the Spirit that we bear fruit and walk in a way that advances the kingdom of God. And so no matter what you call it, the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 set the tone and show the design of the book. Let's continue reading in verse 4. 
And while staying with them, this is Jesus, he ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Still once again showing that they don't get it, right? They think military victory. The Messiah is coming to put Rome underneath his feet. He, they are our oppressors now, but he is going to conquer them and put them at our feet. And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Some people incredibly forget that. Um, but he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This, this one verse is the key verse to the entire book of Acts. And if you, if you don't mind underlining your, in your Bible, I would underline that single verse. You will receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, the main themes and the design of the rest of the book flow out of this one verse, because chapters 2 through 7 are about what happens in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 are what happened in Judea and Samaria. And chapters 13 through 28 are what happens in the end, uh, in the end, uh, to the ends of the earth. And this has been the goal thus far. Remember we said the closest that we've gotten to this goal thus far in the entire Bible is in the exile. Right? Because what did God do when Daniel and Jeremiah and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and, and Esther are in the midst of the... The, the paganism of Babylon. Did he show up? Did he show up in power? Did he show up in might to preserve his glory and make his name famous? Absolutely. When you've when you got King Nebuchadnezzar crawling around on the ground looking like a beast and then standing up to testify of the glory of God, when you've got Cyrus moving and writing that the people can go back as other rulers did before him, when you've got the Spirit of God moving in all of these ways, it shows you something. This has been God's purpose all along, is to restore the blessing to the nations, to get the news out of Jerusalem and spread his glory over all of the earth. And that's exactly what the rest of the book of Acts is aiming towards. But let me tell you, let me caution you in in one sense, because uh, some people are prone to misread the book of Acts. They, They misread it because they, 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 they don't read it as a story. They don't primarily read it as a narrative. Instead, some people read it as a description of things that should happen in the normal operation of the church. And, and there are entire denominations that really that focus on, for instance, take the gift of tongues, right? And the idea that tongues uh, should be a, a normal part of a worship service. I've been a part of, of worship services where, where people have spoken in tongues. It's not scary. It's, it, it might seem a little strange, but it's, it's nothing. And we don't break fellowship over those things. We still consider those people brothers and sisters in Christ. But we want to recognize that those kind of uh, points of emphasis, kind of like the eschatological point of emphasis that, the, uh, that people have, where in verse 7, Jesus says plainly, it's not for you to know the times and seasons, right? But what do we have even to this day? We have some people becoming so enamored with knowing what? The times and the seasons of when God's doing this. and when. I mean, I mean, and this, this is all over Christianity. I mean, my, my own daughter comes to me and says, I had this dream. 
And then, and then my friend had this dream, and we think Jesus is coming back when, when we're about 17 years old. And I'm like, well, that would be great, right? Uh, he, he can come back sooner than that. But the fact of the matter is, we're not going to know. I mean, that's, that's what it plainly says. We're not going to know. And so Jesus tells us something, he, he tells us something, tells the, the disciples something very specific. And in those cases, when we hear specific things like that, we need to be able to discern whether that's describing what's going on in that specific situation or it's prescribing something else that should happen in, uh, that should happen in the normal operation of the church. And here's the key to knowing if something is, is prescribed or described in the book of Acts. Is it spoken of in the epistles, in the letters? If it is prescribed by Paul, John, others in the letters, then it should be something that, is, that, that we, should, we should receive. But if it's just describing something that's going on, then we shouldn't necessarily apply it to the normal operation of the church. Perfect example of this, okay? Because I know I see some of you are like, I'm, I'm not exactly getting this. So, so uh, Peter, uh, in one sense, or uh, Peter, in, in one of his episodes later on in the book of Acts, he's, uh, or it might be Paul, he's going throughout a city, and just the, the shadow of the apostles falling upon people is bringing healing. And uh, there is a, you know, uh, I, think, I think there's, and I forget, I should have looked this up, but this is kind of off the top of my head. There is an, involved a specific piece of like a, a cloth or something like that that's used and this person's healed because they, they touch it and all these kinds of things. And so it, it's describing something that's going on, right? Something that happened to one of the apostles. But based off of that one verse, what do you have? You have televangelists on TV selling you, you know, prayer shawls with the prayer of Jabez woven in the stitches and, 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 and wanting you to send, you know, ninety nine ninety five, and they'll send it to your house. Where do you get that? Well, you get that from reading the book of Acts prescriptively instead of descriptively. You see the difference there? If I'm if I'm just if I'm just uh, if I'm just describing a situation, I'm not commanding you to do anything. But if I'm prescribing something to you, I'm saying I'm saying this is what's right, and you need to do this. Those kind of prescriptions are meant to be followed. But if I'm just describing a situation, then it's totally different. And some we, we've got we've just got to be careful to not read the Book of Acts prescriptively. Because that is not Luke's intent. Luke is describing what happened in the early church. And do we want some of these same things to happen? Absolutely. Listen, if God wants to show up in power and do some of the things that he did in the book of Acts in this very church, I will be the first one in line to say, yes, please, Lord. But to mandate them is a totally different thing. And that's what we want to be cautious about. Just something to be aware of as we go throughout the rest of the book. And I just said all that on the screen, so I'm sorry I didn't flip the slide. So uh, Luke's focus, Luke, what Luke does want us to see, and this is what's important. What Luke does want us to see, and we get this from Jesus' words in this first chapter. He does want us to see how the Spirit empowered the people to take the gospel to the nations with radical devotion. That is the main theme, the key thing that Paul wants, I mean, that Luke wants us to get when reading the book of Acts. 
Because as it goes to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, that's what you see. The Spirit of God moving in God's people to take the gospel to the nations. And so let's look at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Chapters 2 through 7 deal with Jerusalem. The apostles obey, and they wait. Get your running shoes on, because this is where we're about to run through uh, these chapters. The, the apostles obey, and they wait in Jerusalem as commanded. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, or flickering tongues, as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so uh, notice God's providence, God's providence here. Look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from where? Every nation. Every nation. So at this time in, um, uh, in history, there were Jews all across Asia Minor, all across the Arabian Peninsula. And they were not just in Jerusalem. And so they came, all traveled back for this festival. And so all of these Jews from other nations were in Jerusalem. And they all spoke different languages. And when the Holy Spirit came on them, they spoke, the, the apostles spoke specific languages. Look at verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in, Ju in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. It might have been gibberish to the apostles, but there were people who were hearing it who said, we hear the gospel being proclaimed to us in our own specific language. And this imagery of flickering tongues and the wind and all of these kind of things, it's supposed to make our minds go back to when the glory fell on the tabernacle and when the glory fell on the temple. And what Luke is telling us here is that where's the temple? It's not the building that's down the road where they're sacrificing animals and where the priests are residing. The new temple in the book of Acts is where? It's among the people of God who, who, whom God's Spirit has taken up residence inside of them. That's the new temple. That's the new temple. And that's the theme that's going to develop throughout the rest of these chapters here when the gospel is in Jerusalem. And so the, pro the prophets promised in the Old Testament that when God came to dwell in his new temple, that he would unify Israel under this messianic king and that the good news would go out to the nations. And so as Peter preaches in the Spirit... Thousands respond, and this new temple, God's church, is established. And in the next several chapters, you have this tale of two temples. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 46. It says, And day by day, this, this church, this early church, this new temple of God's presence, they were attending the temple, that's the building, together, and breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then turn over to chapter 5, verse 42. Chapter 5, verse 42. What's, what's this new temple of God's presence doing? Every day in the temple from, and from house to house, they do not cease teaching and preaching that, Christ is, that the Christ is Jesus. And so God's temple, this new temple where the Spirit is residing, is people. It's not a place. Key. This is key for us, right? Because what do we call this place typically? This room. The church. We call it the church. 
Well, we, what do we also call this room? The sanctuary. What's the sanctuary stand for? The holy place, right? Right? Or we call it the worship center. I hate that name too. This is not the only place we worship, right? Maybe the corporate worship center. I don't know. Something like that. But, but you get the idea. And we, we joked about it over and over again. You know, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up. There's the people. Now, that's all wrong. That's all wrong. Here's the church building. Here's the church steeple. Open it up. And there's the church, right? We are the church. We are the new temple of God's presence. And Luke is trying to make that clear. Because in the midst of Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47, and Acts chapter 5, verse 42, you see what's happening at the physical temple. When Peter goes to preach in chapters 3, 4, and 5, when Peter preaches in the Jewish temple, he is arrested. He is, he is, he is brought before the rulers and tried as a criminal. And so Luke's point is clear. This new temple of Jesus' community is fulfilling the purpose that God always intended for the Jerusalem people, or for the Jerusalem temple, to be the place where heaven and earth meet, where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence. And so the gospel has gone forth in Jerusalem, but in chapter 6 through 8, persecution hits. Some commentators think that, that they've gotten kind of comfortable, which we know as, as, as people, as human beings, that we tend to get comfortable when God moves. We should kind of want to stay there, right? But that's not always the case. God upsets us in a variety of ways so that we become attuned to where we need to go from there. And that's exactly what happens when persecution hits. There's deacons elected in chapter 6 to deal with this mass of people that has come. And then one of these deacons is Stephen, and he's filled with the Spirit. And Stephen preaches, and they kill him. They stone him to death. And he gives, after he gives this long message, they kill him, and, and we're introduced to this character named Saul. And whether or not it was the church getting comfortable and they were, God, God allowed the persecution to come on to disperse them, we know that what happens next is God's design. Because where were they supposed to go? Jerusalem and then where? All Judea and Samaria. It didn't just need to be a Jerusalem-based church, right? It needed to be a church for all nations. And so in the, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of this guy, new guy Saul, uh, proving of Stephen's execution and then a, 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 a coming and, and rising against the church. It says, look at verse 8, uh, chapter, I mean, chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. And what happened? They were all scattered throughout the regions of where? Where does it say? Judea and Samaria. Hmm, sounds kind of like Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Right? And it says, except the apostles. They, they kind of hung out in Jerusalem as the base of operations. But this, the church moves outward now. And it doesn't cease to be the church when it moves outward. As they go, they take the gospel with them. And so we get to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And Saul has decided that he will go and he will... Uh, well, let's, before we get into that, look at what happens in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 8, the rest of it. The story turns to Philip preaching in Samaria. And what happens is, is that God's people start operating. <laughs> Sorry, I'm so behind on my slides. The, God's people start operating off of this single, single principle. Win the winnable now so that they can win the winnable later. When the, when the apostles would meet resistance, they would redirect. 
And then when they, meet, when they, when they met, were met with receptivity, they would stay. And they would preach and preach and preach. And then when resistance arose, they would go preach somewhere else. What are they doing? They're going where people are winnable, where people are open, where people are hungry, where people are seeking. And Philip is, is taken and he meets this Ethiopian eunuch along the road. And what's this Ethiopian eunuch doing? He's seeking. He's reading the, the scroll of Isaiah that he just received in Jerusalem. And this Ethiopian eunuch dramatically gets saved, gets baptized and goes. And we, we believe, tradition says that he went and established the church in Ethiopia, which is one of the oldest churches in the world. It's still going to this day. And so it traces all, its lineage all the way back to Philip following the Spirit of God to preach to this Ethiopian eunuch. And so Philip goes and he is, uh, he's, he's taken away by the Spirit, verse 39 of chapter 8. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus and as he passed through he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And then the narrative turns. It turns to Saul. Luke sets his sights on the conversion of Saul. And you know the story, Saul's going to persecute the church in Damascus, but the Lord meets him on that road and he's radically transformed. And instead of going into Damascus to persecute, he begins to preach Christ. And ironically, the persecution turns on him. And it says in verse 23 of chapter 9, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill Saul, but their plot became known to him. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And so... We see the conversion of Saul, but then Luke kind of ping-pongs again in chapter 10, to chapter 10, where Peter is in Caesarea. And Peter is very staunch in his Jewish heritage, even though he's a devout follower of Christ. And what chapter 10 does is chapter 10 uh, shows us how this mostly Jewish, multi-ethnic community, I mean, Jerusalem-based community of Jesus became a multi-ethnic international movement because Peter goes and he sees this vision. And this vision is meant to show him that the Gentiles are, uh, that God doesn't consider them ritually impure because of what they're eating. And he, he tells him, he says, he says, all these things are clean. And so go, you know, eat these animals. They're fine. Don't worry about that. Uh, the Gentiles, uh, they are not unworthy of becoming part of God's family. And then God proves it to him because Peter's sent for and a man named by a man named Cornelius. Peter goes and preaches the gospel to this Roman guard Cornelius. And what happens? The spirit moves among his, enti his entire family and everybody gets saved. That's, that's the kind of day I'm talking about. If y'all ever see me doing backflips throughout the streets of Abbeville, that's happened to me, right? The, the whole household got saved. And look at verse 44 of chapter 10. While Peter was saying these things, he sees God do the same thing to the Gentiles that God did to the Jews all the way back in Acts chapter 2. That's the landmark moment here for Peter. It says, the, while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among them were circumcised who had come with Peter, or believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. You hear even in that language, they didn't consider them worthy of it. But what was God, I mean, Peter was even missing it. What was God's intention the whole time? The gospel going forth to all nations, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so God shows it to Peter. 
And then in Acts chapter 11, we have another dramatic shift where these things come together. Verse 19, people are still scattered because of the persecution that arose because of Stephen. And they went as far as Antioch. And what we have in verse, look at verse 20, there were some of them in Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's Gentiles, non-Jews, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so what happens in Antioch is this huge multi-ethnic international church is started and it's about 300 miles from Jerusalem, and it was, it was in the largest and most cosmopolitan city in the Roman Empire of that day. And the gospel took root there, and it becomes the first place believers are called Christians, and a place from which the first ever international missionaries are sent. This is a, this is a landmark moment, this, this, this church in Antioch. And then after Acts chapter 12 gives us some updates on some of the apostles. James killed and Peter in prison, then Peter rescued, and then Herod dies. Then in chapter 13, look at this, this awesome statement that Luke records in the first few verses of Acts chapter 13. Now they were in the, were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, so I, just, just mini message in the middle of the message, okay? Because the Holy Spirit is the main point of the book of Acts. And Jesus introduced that to us this morning, right? John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit is called the helper. And this is, I, I led the youth through this kind of train of thought this morning. Hearing the word helper begs the question, help with what? What's he supposed to, I mean, or if you call him counselor or comforter or advocate, whatever, whatever translation you want to go with, what's, the, what's his end goal? What is the Spirit's end goal in my life? Because whatever it is, I want to know what it is. Because I don't want to be asking the Spirit to do things that the Spirit was never, has never been put inside of me to, to do. And so what is he trying to help me do? What goal is he trying to move me towards? Well, before we answer that question, Jesus, Jesus answers another question for us. That's John chapter 14. John chapter 15, Jesus tells the disciples to do what? To abide, to abide in him. He says, when you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. So in one sense, hear what he's saying. I'm gonna send the spirit, but don't get caught up in trying to figure out what the Spirit's doing, because I already told you in John chapter 3 that the Spirit's like wind. You can't see what He's doing. You can just see the effects of where He's moving. And all you're called to do is what? Move with Him. Don't sit there and wait, like I said this morning, and say, well, God, who do you want me? Who do you want me to talk to? Just go talk to somebody and tell them about Jesus, right? Just go love somebody. Just go minister to somebody in Jesus' name and watch what God does. And so John chapter 14, he's our helper. John chapter 15, all, you're, all you should be concerned with is abiding. And then what we have in the book of Acts is that as you abide, the Holy Spirit speaks. And we get that from Acts chapter 13. Because look at what it says. This, this, is, this is the kind of church I want us to be. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit did what? What verb? Said what? I wonder if it was an audible voice. Set apart from for me, Barnabas and Saul. I don't think it was. 
I don't think it was. You know why? Because that's not how we discern the will of God based on the epistles. That's not how we discern the will of God in the local church. You know how we discern the will of God? Is that the Spirit is, as we're, as we're all abiding, the Spirit's not divided. When He moves, He moves in us all. And as He moves in us all, everybody's like, you know, there's these lost people out here in Asia Minor. Barnabas, Saul, I see you guys being key to fill this role. Barnabas is all like, you know, I was just thinking about that yesterday as we were fasting and praying that we need to be the ones to go. And so it's this, it's, it's, it's this incredibly like spirit-filled democratic process, congregational process where we, where we, where we talk, like this is why it's so important for us to live in community together. Like this is, this is why the way that Southern Christians define church membership drives me absolutely bonkers. Can I just be a little transparent with you for a second? How do we expect, knowing that this is how God reveals his will to us, how do you expect to know the will of God if you just come to church on Sunday morning? How do you expect to know the will of God if you just come to church for corporate worship? Or Sunday school, and then leave. Now, y'all are the choir here. I'm preaching to you, okay? Y'all are here. Thank you for being here. I'm not, I'm not ranting at you, but... We need to be of the same mind of these things. Because according to the New Testament, the book of Acts, the way we've defined church, guess what? Is wrong. The way a lot of our brothers and sisters have defined church is wrong. And some of the reasons that we're not finding the will of God as a church is because we are asking the Spirit to go against the design of God the Father, and He's not going to do it, folks. He's not going to do it. Because He's all in. And if we're not, then we don't need to be surprised when we don't hear him. The Holy Spirit said to them, he called them out and they responded in obedience. And I think that's another issue we've got is that God's called us to do, do, God has called us very clearly in scripture to do certain things, to live a certain way. And we say, well, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just not here. I'm just not sensing the Lord's leadership to serve here. I'm not, I'm just not sensing God's leadership to, to do this basic Christian thing like tithe or share the gospel or, 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 or live to advance the kingdom. I'm just not sure that that's my giftedness. And we kind of like use all these kind of spiritual terms to like, to like shut down the spirit of God in our life. That's what we're doing. And when that happens, when that happens, the church is handicapped. Why? Because as Paul makes very clear to us in the New Testament, that the body of Christ cannot function with a gimped up foot. If, if like half of your right side is in a body cast, you're not going out to play for Auburn on, well, I mean, they might take you at this point in their season, but like you're, you just can't do, can't, you can't do it. You can't, you can't go, yeah, you can't go out and do these things, right? And so this, this for me, it's like the words jumping off the page and hit me in the face to say, Ryan, we are so, we're so far from where we need to be. We're so far from where we need to be. When's the last time you fasted and prayed with your Sunday school class to know the will of God for your life? That's, that's Acts 13. And if the Spirit's 
been put inside of us to be our helper and we're called to abide, that's what it looks like to abide. You see that? That's what the, Paul and Barnabas and the church at Antioch are doing, Acts chapter 13. They're abiding. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit does what the Spirit longs to do. He reveals His will and He takes them to the next step of obedience. And so this begins Paul's first missionary journey to 18, Asia Minor. It's about 14 to 18 years after Jesus' death. And they go on their first missionary journey, and the first place they go as they go on their missionary journeys is to the synagogues. And just like Romans chapter 16, uh, or Romans chapter 116 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek. The reason he says Jew first is because that was their pattern. They went to the synagogues first because they, they're saying, well, if anybody's going to get this, it's the people who have the Old Testament. They have the covenants. And so that became their pattern. And they went and they uh, preached and they planted churches. And over the next, uh, over the next, uh, next year, because it was about 48 AD and it lasted about a year, this missionary journey did, they go and they preach and establish churches in all these different places. And then, like I said, the, the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem comes together in Acts chapter 15, and, and they go and uh, they try to figure out. They say, um, you know, can these Gentiles be Christians without becoming Jews first? And, Paul, and, and they're like, we just don't know. And Paul and Barnabas were like, uh, guys, we're on the front lines, and we've been seeing like the Spirit fall on the Gentiles. I don't think God's worried about whether or not they're circumcised. I don't think God's worried about whether or not they're following like the feasts and all that kind of stuff. Like these people are loving Jesus and they're filled with the spirit and they're, they're preaching the gospel. And those are the main evidences of the spirit's work. So I think they're okay. I don't think they need to become Jews. I think the only thing, and this is what they decide upon. The only thing they need to do is stop going, like make sure you're not worshiping this pagan idol because we saw all of our forefathers do that in the old Testament. That's a bad deal. You can't mix worship with God. And so worship God alone and then we'll and then and then watch them work. The Gentiles are fine, and so that's the outcome of Acts chapter fifteen. Well, then Acts chapter sixteen, what we have is Paul going on his second and third missionary journeys. And just just to summarize all of this, Paul goes and he establishes these, these churches, and it's it's in this period of time that Paul establishes these churches that he's going to write to later on. But to, just to go forward in the story, Paul comes back to Jerusalem in, in Ephesians, I mean, uh, Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Paul goes back to Jerusalem, and the Jews think he's betrayed Israel. And so they start to riot, and the Roman soldiers come in, and they're like, hey, it, this, is, this is legitimately what they say. Isn't that that terrorist from Egypt? <laughs> right? And so, and so Paul gets caught up in this Roman legal machine of his day. So, so just think about it, okay? Don't complain about a setback even if, you're, if you get like mistaken for a terrorist. Like that, that's, that's one of the applications that we kind of see. We complain when we're, when we're on mission and, and like our baggage gets lost, you know, or, or like we get a flat tire or, you know, something like, like, don't, like, don't, don't, don't complain. Like you've never been called a terrorist from Egypt, right? Well, Paul was, 
And Paul thinks, man, I want to be preaching, I want to be traveling, I want to go, I want the gospel to go forth to all nations. And it's like, because of Luke's writing, we hear the, the Spirit of God say, Paul, I got you. It looks bad, but I got you right where I want you. Because what happens? Look at what happens. After Paul's arrested in the temple, look right above, it's the end of chapter 21, Paul speaks to the people. And then just look at the subheadings of the next several sections. Paul speaks to the Roman tribune. Paul speaks to the council. There's a plot to kill him. And so they send him to Felix the governor. Paul testifies, chapter 24, to Felix at Caesarea. And Paul's kept in custody. Now Paul appeals to Caesar. And then Paul goes before Agrippa and Bernice. And then Paul, chapter 26, Paul testifies of his conversion before Agrippa. And then in chapter 27, Paul sails to Rome and he has a shipwreck and he's on this island of Malta. And once again, uh, on the island of Malta, a snake bites him and, uh, and he doesn't die. That is not a reason to handle snakes. I don't know why people go there, but that's just crazy talk. Okay, but that's, that's where they get it from. That's one of the places they get it from. That in Mark 16, the edition. And so he goes and Paul arrives in Rome and Paul, you just gotta, you just gotta think in his mind, and you can even hear it in some of his New Testament writings. We'll, we'll highlight that when we get there. Paul's saying, "Why, God, I want to be preaching and traveling and establishing churches." And what's he been doing this whole time? Testifying before rulers and governors, and now he's in the Washington D.C. of that day, Rome. And he's meeting every day under house arrest with Jews and Gentiles, his Roman guards. We're going to learn in Philippians are hearing about the gospel. And he sees this great harvest. And the book's final words are about how Paul is announcing the kingdom of God. Look at verse 30. It says, And he lived there two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and witness. And it's right at Caesar's back door. And then it ends. And so what have we seen? Just a quick summary and then we'll be done. What have we seen? First of all, we've seen that God's people are people who walk in the Spirit. And they share the good news of Jesus in words and actions. But then we see that God's people form diverse communities of people where the Word is central and the Spirit is moving. We've seen all of these examples of faithfulness. And that is what Luke wants us to see. Several years ago, I heard about a church. It was called an Acts 29 church. And I was like, those crazy folks. Don't they know Acts only has 28 chapters? And I was like, oh, I get it. Right? I get it. We're living in Acts 29. Good marketing, right? It's it's true. It's theologically true and really good. That's the truth, y'all. We are an Acts 29 church. And if we don't believe that, then what, what, why are we here? If we don't want to glean from the New Testament and be admonished and encouraged by the power of the Spirit in the book of Acts, then what, what are we thinking that God wants to do in our midst? And we think, well, I'm not Peter, and I'm not Paul, and I'm not, I'm not this guy, and I'm not this guy. Remember, that's not the main character. Who's the main character? Spirit of God. Martin Luther said this. He said, The truth is mightier than eloquence, the spirit greater than genius, and faith more than education. And so why not, church? Why not? We've got the same spirit. And so what 
is hindering us from full surrender because that's all it takes. Y'all have heard the quote that, I, that I've, I've told you over and over again that's kind of become one of my landmark like quotes in my mind. There's not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence as to which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. And it's our responsibility as the church, empowered by the Spirit, to go into every area, every organization, every institution, every school, every workplace, every family, every community, every area of our culture, and say, this belongs to Jesus. And he wants to reclaim this for his glory. You know, there's another worldwide organization that has that same mission statement. It's called Radical Islam. Right? We want to go into every area of society and we want to do what? We want to implement Sharia law. And you know what Islam means? Islam means, or a Muslim is one who submits. And the difference there between Radical Islam and Biblical Christianity is that Radical Islam actually looks at the nation's and says, we want to make the world submit through strong threats of force, and we will take your life to show you how important it is to submit. Christianity has the same goal, but a different means. We seek to tell the world of a loving Savior who gave his life. He gave everything. And how do they see that in us? Because we risk our lives just as the Savior did to show them how much he loves them. So once again... What are we asking the Spirit of God to do in our midst? What are we praying for? It's just like William Carey said. He, said. he said, expect great things from God, but then do what? Attempt great things for God. And so what are we expecting? What are we praying for? What are we longing for Him to do among our kids, among our, among our community, among our schools? Are we... Are we praying little mediocre, you know, kind of human-sized prayers? Are we praying at all? Are we fasting? Are we, are we seeking God? Are we cultivating relationships and building bridges through our love and through our words so that the gospel can go over those bridges into the life of those other people? That's what, God, that's what the Spirit of God is trying to do in us today. And I don't think we get it. I don't think we, I, I don't think we as a church collectively that we really think that that's what Christianity is all about. And the reason that God brought you here tonight is because he wants to make you my prayer partners that he will do that. That he will, that, that, our, uh, that our people, just like what we saw uh, when, the, when the gospel was taken to a certain place, that they heard the truth and they believed and it transformed their lives. It transformed their entire perspective. Because I want to see, I want to see our, our kids go and say, this school, this is, God, this is God's place. You're, this, these are God's people. And I want to tell you about who Jesus is and how much he loves you. I, I'd love to see each one of you go into your workplaces and just plant a flag there for the glory of God to say, this is the Lord's. Jesus is Lord of this place. I'm going to live out his value system in this place. No matter what it costs me, no matter how different I look from everybody else, I want people to see Jesus in me and they won't do that if I'm blending in with everybody else. And maybe, just maybe... One day, it would be said of us, like it was said of the apostles, that by their teaching, they turned the world upside down. What a tribute. What a tribute. 
And no matter what the cost, I'd love for us to get there together. So I want to pray, and we'll be done, and then you'll have some time to write uh, some letters, just a few letters, just as an initial contact. If you want to take them and go and then write them and send them off yourself, you can. You don't have to have our station or whatever. You can use your own little note cards. But the fact of the matter is, folks, is that there's no mission without people. You could scrap every program in this church, and we'd still be a church. As long as we have a firm grasp of the truth and of the mission. And that's what we need to be gearing ourselves towards. And so this is just a small part, a small part of the mission. Because our body is weak. Our body is hurting. Our body is broken. And God's not going to call somebody from the outside to come in and minister to the body. Guess who he's calling? Each one of you. And maybe some of you in this room are broken. And you're thinking, if people knew what was going on in my life, they'd be writing notes to me. Remember how you find the will of God? You find endurance? You don't live Lone Ranger Christianity. You live it in the community of believers, in the context of small groups, in the church people who are walking the same direction as you, godly men and women who have counsel, who will share it with you because in a multitude of counselors, there's safety. And that's how we discover God's will. And that's what my longing is for us as a church, is that we would embrace God's definition for the church. And as we continue to go forward in the epistles, that he would continue to add to that and set us on fire for his mission and for his glory. And that little things like this would just become normal habits phone calls, text messages, Facebook messages, visits where you randomly knock on their door and surprise them and all those kinds of things with a pound cake or you take a meal to them, like all this, it just should be normal. And then like, like, just one more thing, is that when we do have corporate worship settings just like this, is it like if if I could if I could change one thing? It has nothing to do with music. It has nothing to do with projector. Even though Lord have mercy, that's really dark. I wish that every time we had an invitation, that these steps were filled up with people who were hitting their knees for people in our community, in our workplaces, our schools, our teachers, our kids. People would be looking at me. Yeah. What would they be thinking? Does it matter? It doesn't. It doesn't. What matters is our response and our obedience to follow this mission. And so, let me pray for us and, and we'll be done.